You are listening to episode 31 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, in which Elektra returns and recruits the Gladiator to fight at Daredevil's side against ninjas. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where men are men, women are women, and ninjas are ninjas. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. Here, I look at the comics starring Marvel's Man Without Fear, Daredevil. And for the last few months and the next few to come, I've been reading through the original Frank Miller run on the title. He's brought new characters to the table, such as Elektra, and revamped old characters like Bullseye, Kingpin, and the Gladiator. This week, all of that kind of comes together and we bring ninjas into the fold as new developments take hold of Hornhead stories in Daredevil number 174. I had come into this episode preparing to regale you with factoids about the time that this issue came out in. However, earlier this week we found out Charlie Cox would portray the Man Without Fear in the upcoming Netflix series and my first reaction was, who the hell is Charlie Cox? Boardwalk Empire, I haven't seen this, so I fired up IMDb, and my second reaction was, the kid from Stardust? And then I thought it over for about 30 seconds, and I got extremely excited for the show. Here's why. Charlie Cox is a fresh face. I know a lot of people were really rooting for Michael C. Hall. He is in no way a bad choice, but we've already imprinted Dexter on him. You could see him on the covers of the DVDs and any of the promotional material. We know Michael C. Hall as Dexter. So we have this fresh face that we can imprint fully a Matt Murdock persona on. He's our hero, with none of the baggage of a previous role. Now his biggest role, as I mentioned, was in Stardust, which was a movie which was, well, phenomenal. If you haven't seen Stardust, definitely take a look at that. It's whimsical, it comes off as a chick flick, but it's actually really good. And Cox plays this character who goes through this full arc in that story. He starts off as a sheepish, meek boy, and then by the end of it, he's a formidable fighter. When he's standing there with a sword in hand, ready to fight Sinestro, or I'm sorry, Mark Strong, you believe that he has gone through training, and that's what you need for Daredevil. He's got a range to him. Here's another encouraging idea. Cox shows that they're thinking outside the box with how they're casting. Some of the names that were on the list were, again, Michael C. Hall, Zac Efron at one point, which... Wow, let's just be glad that didn't happen. But they're thinking with a different set of eyes. And it's kind of like when Henry Cavill was announced as Superman. We didn't know he was even in the running still. And here was this dark horse that came in, owned the role, and crushed it. So I'm looking forward to further casting announcements as well. Here's another thing. The casting of Daredevil right after Drew Goddard left means that things are still on track. There was a lot of stress when he left, and... I'll be honest with you, it looks like he handed it over pretty seamlessly. The show is on track. It seems to be popping at a good pace. So I'm excited about that as well. Showrunners leave shows all the time. It's not a point of disaster. Sometimes it's a step up. Sometimes it's the right voice at the right time. Goddard felt like he was better suited for another line of work, another project. And he ran with it, and that's fine. 
I think we're still looking good. And for those that are sad that we don't get a Daredevil movie, a big screen movie, look at it this way. Instead of two, two and a half hours with our hero, we get 13 episodes, roughly 13 hours, probably a little less on average, but we get to see a tale unspool and have room to breathe and spend a lot of quality time with this character, and we can see a lot of development across 13 episodes. Look at any HBO series. Look at Game of Thrones for a great example. So, sign me up as on board for the Daredevil Netflix series. This is the moment my buy-in became complete, and it looks like everything is on track. Now, as for the crazy trivia about this week's issue, issue 174 is the September cover-dated issue for 1981, but it dropped onto stands around May 26th. This is tangentially the day before an odd entry for Marvel Comics history. See, a guy named Dan Goodwin decided to dress up as Spider-Man and climb what was then the tallest building in the world, the Sears Tower. Goodwin had been inspired by a hotel fire where the guests couldn't be rescued because of the design, and he decided to develop new rescue plans for such an occurrence such as climbing buildings. But he had been ignored by the fire chief, and he decided to test some of his scenarios and scale this thing. This is scary. That's just a scary thought. You're in Chicago, so there's wind. You have a building designed to sway in the wind versus a man in spandex and suction cups. He went on to climb other famous buildings like the World Trade Center, which had the same amount of stories, 110, as the Sears Tower. And sure, Marvel wasn't looking for this kind of publicity, and surely Frederick Wortham would have something to say on the matter, but Goodwin managed to climb without, you know, death, dismemberment, all of that. So talk about a man without fear. And the same month, Jerry Seinfeld made his TV stand-up debut on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Bob Marley died, and the musical Cats made its Broadway debut, so now we can all get the song Memories stuck in our heads. No, I will not sing it for you. Movie-wise, this month saw the debut of The Legend of the Lone Ranger, acting Clinton Spilsbury's only movie role in which all of his lines were dubbed. How sad is that? And in the comic book world... DC was introducing the All-Star Squadron and RX Son of Thunder, both of which debuted this month. One would lead to an awesome podcast by Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey. The other is a guilty pleasure for many people. And then there's this week's issue, with its cover by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, showing Daredevil, Elektra, and the Gladiator standing ready for combat with many swords facing them, and the shadows of a legion of ninjas cast on the wall. The text tells us that Daredevil, Elektra, and the Gladiator fighting an army of assassins. So, taking a look at this cover, it's better than most of the covers that were on stands this month. It stands out. Some of that's the green color. Some of that's the shadow effect. The layering of all of this down to the figures. But the characters themselves have somewhat stock poses. And then, at the same time, you have this odd grouping. Elektra wasn't a familiar face yet. The gladiator was a villain, yet he's fighting alongside Daredevil. And then, there's the shadows. They just sell it. Maybe this was a lazy way out, a lazy way to not draw a bunch of ninjas, but you definitely feel like there's a greater number here than if you saw that many figures. So just looking at this cover, assassins? Check. Swords? Oh yes. Elektra is back? Yeah. I gotta buy into this issue. So a bit of a recap before we jump in. Elektra was Matt's long-lost love, who arrived as an international bounty hunter and then took off several issues ago. Meanwhile, Melvin Potter was awaiting trial on a kidnapping case, defended by Matt Murdock, when a case of mistaken identity almost got him in more hot water last week. 
And Foggy has been acting strangely, moping around, snapping at people like Matt. And that pretty much sets the stage for Daredevil number 174, which we will look at right after this podcast promo break. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, a date which will live in infamy, a world at war, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents the All-Star Squadron. Tales of the Justice Society of America every Friday at two true freaks.libson.com. And we are back to look at Daredevil number 174, which bore the story title, The Assassination of Matt Murdock. This little ditty was written by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Joseph Rosen, and colored by Glennis Ween. If you're reading along, you can find it reprinted in the Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2 trade paperback, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus Hardcover, and of course digitally on Marvel Digital, Comixology, and Digital Unlimited. Jumping into the story. In an unnamed European city, Elektra stalks her latest bounty only to see him killed right before her eyes. Having lost out on a payday, Elektra follows the assassin only to discover that it is a ninja and a member of the Hand, the order of assassins that trained her. The ninja, called Jinan, sneaks into a clandestine meeting with his superior to report success. As Elektra watches, the ninja is given his next assignment, an American lawyer named Matt Murdock. Conflicted, Elektra declares that she will not try to save her lover turned enemy, but yet she finds herself on a plane to New York. In the Big Apple, Matt is having a hard time defending Melvin Potter and fails to get a delay in trial. Frustrated, Matt bounds across New York as Daredevil and slips back into his brownstone where he changes into his civvies. 
But Matt quickly realizes he is not alone in the brownstone, and several ninja assassins step out of the darkness. The assassins are fast. They are precise, but so is Matt, and he manages to take out all four assassins in only seconds. But when Matt goes to question one of the ninjas, they dissolve into a pungent-smelling smoke. And that is how Matt finds the fifth assassin, already dissolving in the closet. Matt realizes that somebody must have aided him, but who? From a nearby rooftop, Electra watches the smoke rise out of the brownstone and thinks, Let him wonder. Okay, I think we were all wondering what Electra has been up to, and apparently it's just going to nameless European cities. She's a bounty hunter, this is what she does. It's more of a career than a hobby. It's nice that we jump right in with Electra doing her thing, although it's a fairly gruesome death for the bounty. It's an arrow through the neck. Now the bounty's name was Alphonse de Chanteau. It's not important, he's dead. But I figured just for detail's sake I would throw it on the table. Now it's fun to watch Electra. She's a very expressive character. She is very emotional, and she wears that on the sleeve in an odd, odd way. For example, in the first two pages, we see her go from pissed off that her bounty just got taken away from her, to completely filled with fear that the hand has not only thwarted her, they're not only expanding, but now Matt is the target. I mentioned that the term genin was thrown around. Uh, that's kind of an American pronunciation, but essentially it's a lower ninja. The ninjas had ranks. They had an organization. Most of what you know about ninjas are pretty much myth. Realistically, they were a spy order. I mean, more on the lines of CIA, James Bond, that kind of thing. But basically, a genin was a stormtrooper. They were the lower level, with Jonin being the top. They're the ones that give orders. They're the ones that give out the assignments. They're the Miss Moneypennies of the ninja world. In between is a chunin, which is kind of upper ranked. They would be the officers. And it was kind of cool to take a look at the ninja pecking order while researching this, but it's a lot of information to try to impart upon you, and doesn't really serve the story that much. Now, Electra was trained by the Hand, which is what she mentions, which kind of alludes to the Scarlet in her outfit, because the Hand wear, they're not geese, I don't believe, but they're, they're robes of red with a hood and their faces are covered. They all look pretty stock, kind of like a stormtrooper. It also is a good color pick for these characters because, well, artistically, they're going to stand out against black, kind of the way Daredevil does. Well, Electra, again, to get back to my point, Electra mentions she was trained by the hand, but there's more to it than that. And that is a tale for another day. I just want to tease it. Another Mission Impossible type scenario is when the photo of Matt Murdock is seen, basically the target appears in a photo, you receive the image, it's converted to memory, the photo self-destructs. It catches fire. Not only does it add that Mission Impossible feel, it adds a layer of mysticism to the hand as well, which won't be the only layer we see by a long shot. And the thing I dig the most is Electra's conflict. Electra feels like she hates Matt. She's not going to stick her neck out for it. She's a bounty hunter. She's hard inside. She's dead inside. There's no emotion there, right? Well, apparently Matt is her Achilles heel. She feels that she hates him, and yet she's on a plane to New York. Not only is this showing a sense of inner nobility that she may not use, but it exists, it also is going to lead to her downfall in a lot of ways. This is the decision that's going to destroy Electra after rebuilding her. And then we jump to New York. More familiar trappings, the courtroom, Matt Murdock, where Matt is fumbling. And you know, it bothers me that that's happening. 
Matt is not incapable of being a lawyer. Sure, Foggy can find some obscure ruling from 200 years ago that somehow has a bearing on this case. But Matt knows his way around a law library. He has Becky Blake to help, too. Matt's lawyering skill seems to be predicated on what the story needs, which I guess is fine if you're trying to construct a mythology and an ongoing tale. But he, he's presented here as an, a basically incompetent lawyer, and that's not the case. But again, another ongoing story feeding perfectly and, and organically into the tapestry of what we're going to see with this particular issue. And, you know, it's hard to get mad at that overall. And then Matt leaps across New York as Daredevil. There's one shot in the second panel of this page that is Times Square without form outside of a light pole. It's all the lights of Times Square just lit to an intense level, which isn't quite how Matt would perceive it, but I guess the heat from the light would at least indicate something for him, at least judging by previous issues. There's one panel where he leaps across marquees of movie theaters. Looking on here, you see movies like Thief with James Caan, Eyewitness, Nighthawks, The Postman Always Rings Twice. Doing some digging, I found out these were all movies released from roughly late February of 1981 to early April, which at the time was meant to give it a more contemporary, in-the-now feel. Unfortunately, looking back on it, it dates the story a bit. But it's not like we don't know that we're reading a book from 1981. I stated it right at the top of the show. Miller continues to play with angles as Matt comes down onto the brownstone and we get an aerial view where we actually get the top of the building. It's not the most innovative shot, but darn it, it took me a moment to say, hey, that's kind of cool. And then he comes down the stairways with all these weird masks on the side. I know Matt has a sculpture library, but this is just a bit disconcerting. Changes into clothes, and I didn't catch that as he's coming down the steps, you actually see the shadow of Electra on the side here. Very subtle, because you see Matt's shadow in the silhouette of the skylight. Electra is in the window because you see the blinds behind her. That's pretty cool. Did not notice it until now. But then again, she's a ninja. You're not supposed to notice her. And suddenly we have ninjas. I'm sorry, who can get mad at ninjas? Really? And Matt notes that they're moving so quietly that he can barely hear them. Think about that. Matt can hear a gnat from 20 yards away. Matt can identify you from your heartbeat. A subtle sound, which is the only way he notices them. How many times are you standing around next to somebody right next to them and hear their heartbeat. You really have to put your ear to their chest to hear their beats. And these people are moving quietly enough that he doesn't notice them. The only thing that tips them off is the heartbeat. So I want to point this out. Despite Matt beating these ninjas in about 30 seconds, they're deadly. They're hardcore. And one of the best shots of the book is Matt standing on this rug with the ninjas coming out of the darkness. Just complete blackness. There, This is where the red comes in. Because you see their forms a little bit, at least enough, but the red is what defines them. Their main bodysuit is in black, but their accoutrement, so to speak, belts, masks, so on and so forth, are in red, helping to define them in a really unique and pretty scary way. Adding to the mysticism yet again is the dissolving into smoke. This is the equivalent of taking a cyanide pill, I guess. If you fail your mission, you're toast. You're not even that, you're vapor. But in the back of my head, especially with the dead assassin in the closet, I keep thinking to myself, man, Matt's stuff is going to stink for a while. Imagine if that particular effect was weaponized. Yes, that's another tease. And I want to point out that as far as how quiet the hand were, which is excessively quiet, Electra was able to slip past Matt completely. 
totally unnoticed. That's how awesome she is. But let's ask ourselves the real question. Why are the Hand, a group of ninja assassins, going after Matt Murdock? Well, at Fisk Tower, Kingpin answers that question because he admits to hiring the ninjas to remove Matt Murdock and Melvin Potter, since Daredevil seems to care about them in this case, and draw Daredevil out into combat to lose to the Hand. Speaking of the Hand, they're stalking outside Matt's offices, waiting to strike as Matt runs into the Forlorn Foggy in the offices. While Elektra battles the ninjas, Matt learns that the storefront law firm is essentially broke, and Foggy feels that it's his fault. That is why he's been acting like a little girl with a skinned knee. Matt and Foggy share a forgiving hug as Elektra fails to stop one of the ninjas from throwing an explosive into the office. The resulting boom knocks Matt out, and when he wakes up in the hospital, Heather is at his side. Matt realizes that the hand will be after Melvin, but Matt is stunned to find that his radar sense is gone. Well, even when he had radar sense, Matt sure didn't see the kingpin coming. And didn't that seem like a convoluted plan to you at first? He's hiring the hand to kill Matt and Melvin, because Daredevil seems to have an interest in this case. The idea is that Daredevil would then come out and fight and die. Seems like taking the long way around, however I thought it through. See, Kingpin's hired muscle just isn't going to cut it against Daredevil. So, turn to the ninjas. The ninjas wouldn't be able to track down Daredevil because they have no intel. And the ninjas are relentless. I mean, they're stalking outside the office just waiting for him after their first failure. This is a different group of ninjas, by the way. I mean, still order of the hand, but a different group of individual ninjas. And while Elektra is fighting silently, which is kind of cool, Matt finds out why Foggy's been all butthurt. Really, this is it? This is why you've been an ass, Foggy? Who's surprised that a storefront law firm wasn't pulling in Johnny Cochran dollars? Of course, this is not a lucrative career. Normally, lawyering is, but at the level that they're working at, no. So nobody should be surprised that the storefront law firm is broke. Foggy was overreacting, but again, this is the bromance of Matt and Foggy, a solid moment. But unfortunately, the bromance moment gets pretty much interrupted right at the point of the explosion. And there is a shot of sheer terror on Electra's face as the explosive is going through the air towards the window. Like her heart is stopping. If Electra was conflicted, this should prove what her real emotions are saying. I mean, as human beings, we tend to ignore our emotions in some cases. We're told to feel this way about some things, that way about others. For her, math needs to be off the table for her to do her job and continue to live the life she's chosen. And yet, in this moment, with a simple word balloon saying Matt, I think everything becomes clear for Electra. It's a nice character beat, and the second one in this issue that makes me believe that everything that's going to happen for this character in this run has already been figured out. Miller knows where she's going. She makes the fatal choice to come to New York to defend Matt. She becomes emotionally invested. While she was admittedly conflicted, I think that conflict is completely gone. She knows what her heart wants, just as he looks like he's about to die. Of course, he lives. He wakes up in the hospital, and somehow Matt realizes that the hand is after Melvin. It's a big jump. I know it moves the story along, so I accept it, but it bothers me that he's put the pieces together, at least some of the pieces. How would Matt know that the hand is not only after him, but also after Melvin? There is no indicator to that. So far, we've had two attempts on him, which should speak to the repetitiveness of the issue, but it doesn't. 
actually that plays out really well. Sure, two attempts, but they're both different and they both play out differently. Since Miller's taken over as writer, this is the second time that Matt has lost his radar sense. And it brings a lot of interesting questions to the table. How much of Matt's day-to-day activity, not only as lawyer Matt Murdock, but as Daredevil, is discipline and skill versus the radar sense? Because as we saw in the subway with Bullseye, even blind, without the radar sense, Matt's fairly capable. And we're going to take a look here at a moment showing Matt is seemingly still capable without the radar sense. And while Matt grapples with being truly blind, Elektra does some recruiting of sorts. She manages to hijack the transport that's taking Melvin to another prison, which frees the gladiator, and she hands him his armor to defend himself. Melvin reluctantly puts the armor on. Almost immediately after that, the hand arrive, leading Elektra and the gladiator into combat, but gladiator just can't seem to fight. Also present is Daredevil, working off of his remaining senses. Sure, he makes a good showing, but Elektra has to watch his back once again. Elektra manages to chase off the hand, leaving only Melvin and Daredevil behind, and Melvin mentions the girl with the sigh, and Matt thinks that it couldn't have been her. Later, ninjas report to their Jonin, the High Ninja, that they have failed. So the High Ninja brings in one big bad ninja, and the remaining hand ninjas are all killed in one swift blow. And as the ninjas fall to the floor, the lone assassin is handed his next target, the woman named Elektra. Now, in terms of the emotional conflict of Elektra, saving Matt's kind of a given. Sure, she was conflicted, but now she knows I have to protect him. He's Matt Murdock. But she goes the extra mile, which kind of proves my point that the conflict that was within her is gone. Because she saves Melvin. Melvin is nothing to her at all. Melvin's not even an entity. She's never met Melvin. They've never faced each other. But Melvin is important to Matt. And Matt is important to her. And that is the realization that hits her when that explosive goes through the window. Are we told this expressly? No. We have to work to get to that. But looking at it, we clearly see that that is the character arc in this issue. Elektra is going through something great. Now maybe Elektra has gained some of Matt's positivity. Or maybe she's just finally completely clear on how she feels about Matt. Regardless of how he feels about her. Because if you remember when she came into the picture... It seemed like she tried to kiss Matt reflexively, and Matt rejected that. And then later, Elektra goes to Matt's apartment, finds Heather there, and leaves. That's the last time we saw her. So for Elektra's side of the equation, she's pretty certain Matt has no feelings left for her, which isn't entirely true, isn't entirely false. But Elektra has, in this one issue, come to a place where she's fine with how Matt does or does not feel with her. But in this one issue, Elektra has become content with the fact of how she feels about Matt versus how he feels about her. His feelings are not on the table. And let's be honest, maybe there's some part of Elektra that's trying to prove herself worthy to him. She's bringing out some of those elements to show Matt that she's not the heartless killer that he thinks she is. Another character that's really benefiting from this issue is Melvin. I love, love, love the fact that Melvin hesitates when putting on the armor. Because he's trying not to be the gladiator. He's trying very hard not to be the gladiator. And this is perfectly in step with the childlike nature that we're seeing develop in Melvin. Because, like a kid, he's been told not to do something. Don't disobey. And he's doing his best to honor that. But when it does come down to blows, he can't even fight back. Somewhere, even without him realizing it, Melvin has broken through the gladiator. And Miss Betsy, in my opinion, is what is to blame for that. 
she's bringing out the best in Melvin, and Melvin is becoming kind of like Electra, content with his place in the world, regardless of the gladiator. When Melvin first debuted, his whole shtick was, I'm going to prove that with the right weapons, anybody can be a superhero. He was out to prove something, and now he's not. He's content. The character work that's being done here is phenomenal. It's subtle, and that's what I like. We're not getting hit in the face with it like it's a brick. It's on the page, it's free to assume, but it's not right on the sleeve, which is exactly how character development should be. It should be organic. It should be shown rather than told. Essentially, Melvin has found peace being Melvin. And then we get down to the fight. The hand are everywhere. They're out to get Melvin, and Daredevil shows up, even without his radar. Daredevil still has hearing. He still found his way here. His senses are all on point. So, I don't have a good answer for this, but how much of Daredevil's prowess is that skill and discipline? And how much is the radar sense? Is it 80-20? Is it 70-30? 60-40? Not sure. I would say his senses are definitely the majority, but how much of the majority, I'm not sure, because the radar sense, man, that can make a difference in a fight. And Matt oddly mentions that the situation he's in with the loss of radar is just like the old days, before my radar sense fully developed. In all the incarnations of the origin we've looked at, from Man Without Fear to Daredevil number one, this has been a fairly short span of time before the radar sense was really a factor. But the fully developed part of that is interesting, and I kind of liken it to learning to read. When we're learning to read, we have an understanding, we know letters, we can form those into words, eventually we get to sentences, it's rudimentary, but eventually it coalesces into you absorb a paragraph. It just becomes second nature, kind of like driving as well, where the mechanics are thought out at first. You have to think, do I need to hit the brake, do I need to hit the gas, what gear am I in? Eventually it's second thought, you throw it in reverse and you go. And yet... With all of this thought and Daredevil patting himself on the back for doing all of this without his radar sense, it's hilarious that Elektra is right behind him, saving him once again from another hand ninja. Now speaking of Elektra, how badass is Elektra that she scares these hand ninjas away? She's like the hardcore alley cat chasing the big dogs. And I think we need to take a moment to understand that for all the emotions that we've seen Elektra go through, she's still a ninja. She's still got skills, and the reason she's got certain skills that scare the hand is perhaps that the hand wasn't the only place she learned these disciplines. And I'm going to leave that on the table till a later date. But it bothers me that Matt thinks it couldn't be her. No, it couldn't be her. You get that surprise once, Matt. I mean, when she showed up, sure. Why would it be her? Why would Elektra be coming out of nowhere? Now, you kind of know Elektra's on the table somewhere. And it's not like the conflict, the idea of these two being enemies was clearly stated they did kind of team up in her first appearance. The only thing that we saw was Matt not returning her kiss, and yet somehow we're to be told that they hate each other and they're enemies. Sure, they have conflicting ideologies, but that doesn't make them completely opponents. In fact, we haven't seen any opposition yet. Now, as we get to the end here, we see five ninjas running away. That's how many ran away from Elektra. When we get to the scene where they're reporting their failure, there are only three. So Electra's killed at least a couple. The thing that stands out for me for the Jonin is he's in a suit eating noodles. He's not in the traditional hand regalia. He's just a businessman. So it seems to me to tie the, the sort of Eastern ninja ideal to the 80s Wall Street mentality, which makes a fairly seamless bridge between 
the mysticism of ninja, and the underworld of the kingpin. And just to let you know, the big ninja that, you know, slices all three of these people with one swoop, he's big, big trouble. And of course, Electra becomes the new target. Now, Electra knows the hand. She knows their methods. She knows that as soon as she stands against them, she's going to become a target for them. She knew that when she made the choice to get on the plane, when she stepped in to help Matt at his brownstone, and when she helped Melvin. Electra has essentially made a sacrifice. She's put a target on her back. If that doesn't tell us what Electra feels for Matt and what she's willing to do for him, nothing ever will. We get a perfect character arc in this story for Electra, a nearly perfect story for her, from hardcore assassin to that one little thing in her heart that can bring her emotion to making what is essentially the ultimate sacrifice, at least in the long term. Overall, this issue was a huge leap forward. Again, Electra makes a triumphant return. We see a great story with her. And having the hand arrive brings a whole new element in. And yet, it still ties with existing things through the kingpin. It's tangential, but it's there. For as much as this book has been cooking for the last several issues, this one really stood out. It kicked the story into overdrive and brought in some things that are perfect for Daredevil and not familiar. We've seen Daredevil take on the Underworld. We haven't really seen Daredevil take on too many ninjas. This is not a good issue. This is a phenomenal issue. And it puts a lot of great things on the board. And it's really pivotal to Matt's growth, as well as Electra's. But we're going to see that play out a little bit more in the next few issues. But that is that on Daredevil number 174. Next week, more ninjas. Electra makes with the sexy. Foggy saves the day. And Daredevil finds out that he's pretty good with a katana. That is in one week. And don't forget, episode 35 is the Batman Daredevil special. So until we meet again, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one. They call a man without fear. Never far away. Whenever things is near. Daredevil fight for what is right. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast.
Here 